The analogy I, they use in Zen philosophy is the bowl. We buy a bowl, but what, which is being. It's made of substance. But what we're actually buying is non-being. Right? The whole, the space in the bowl is what makes the bowl useful. And so, with speaking, we see speaking. And in our, I don't know, patriarchalish society, we see action as more. Uh, noble than non-action, doing more powerful than waiting, and speaking more powerful than listening. But speaking and listening are just two sides of one coin. Welcome to the Technobiotic Podcast, Episode Eight. Join us on our journey of finding humanity among technology, with your hosts Laura Araujo, Matt Drew, and Shane Carlson. Joined today by our special guest Daniel Stillman. Hello and welcome to the Technobiotic Podcast. I'm Shane Carlson, one of your co-hosts. I'm with my fellow co-hosts today, Laura Araujo and Matt Drew. How are you guys doing? Hanging in there. What day yeah. is it? Yes, the 45th Monday of this week. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> with us today is a gentleman by the name of Daniel Stillman. And uh, some of you who listen to Daniel's podcast may recognize the dulcet tones of his calming voice from the Conversation Factory. Welcome, Daniel. Hey, thank, thank you so much, Shane. It is a distinct pleasure to be here. I've never done a uh, a squad cast, so this is kind of like a new experience. Pretty cool. I feel like I'm one of those. Yeah. I'm on one of those morning shows, like, and somebody's just gonna yeah. like. There's gonna be some sound effects that are gonna be popping in at some point. You know, I do have the stream deck here, but I don't have anything programmed. <laughs> but, 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 but the fact that you're having to use your snap camera and you're sparkling like a, uh, a early 2000s teenage uh, young adult vampire uh, is. <laughs> what we have to do in the, the era of 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 quarantine to amuse ourselves. Several yeah. of my social calls have devolved into background photo competitions. Uh, there, there is a strange and interesting escalation that happens on just about every social Zoom call these days, where people are are trying to outdo one another's virtual backgrounds. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's all we have right now. I always win. Always, always. What's your What's your background of choice? It actually depends. So there are some absolutely horrific, uh, like, plastic surgery uh, gone wrong images that always, they always work in a pinch. Uh, there's also, I've got like a pink scooter that makes for a really fun background. It just depends on who I'm with. You know, I like to mix it up and uh, I always like to have something that's topical and uh, at the same time, hilarious and distracting. And so I, I always win. I'm, I'm apparently very good at being distracting. Well, if I can unpack this a little bit, like it seems like, yeah, you put considerable thought into it. And dare I say design, there's like choices that you go into it, which is why you oh. win is because you're planning. There's a pride factor there for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. 
See, see, which brings us to back to it always comes back to design, doesn't it? And one of the reasons we wanted to have Mr. Stillman on the podcast here is the fact that uh, he is a designer of conversations. So I almost feel like sometimes that you know, in a conversation with Daniel, I'm almost being handled <laughs> and, and manipulated. And, manipulated. And part of me, you know, feels both a, a sense of pride that you know he's taking the time to actually you know handle somebody through a conversation, but also just a little bit, you know, where is he taking me on? this conversational journey. So, so tell, tell us a little bit about conversations and why they're important to you, Mr. Stillman. Well, I mean, it's really interesting. And I, I think it's, it's a dangerous, it's a dangerous topic because this actually happened when I, when I first got into this idea of designing conversations, I did uh, a few sample interviews with a few friends of mine. It was kind of like a prototype for my podcast a year before I did my podcast. And one of the things that came up was this sense of is conversation design manipulation. And I think in the sense that the word manipulate comes from the Latin word uh, manus, which means hand, right? Like manual labor, the stuff we use use with your hands. And, and, And for me, this idea of conversations being designable we are all designing our conversations. Like all of us are designing them. Every question we ask uh, when we go into a conference room and there's a whiteboard or there isn't, that's a design for a conversation. And so to me, I think it can definitely feel like, oh, is am I being manipulated? But good desi- good conversation design, like good design sh- is invisible. And and it often is. And, and, and what I'm maybe interested in is getting people conscious and mindful about the ways that they're already designing their conversations. Cause you know, we are co-designing our conversations. You've designed this conversation. We're in a place that you've specified at a time you specifies you, you spent, you sent me a, a Google calendar invite, right? You've got a, a script, you've got some sample questions. Like we are all designing our conversations and either we do it well, or we like stumble I was like, I mean, who gives a keynote speech and and wings it? Like, if you ask somebody to marry you, you don't just say like, and spoiler alert, this actually happened to someone I know, like their significant other just like rolled over in bed one morning and was like, hey, do you want to get married? And like, that's the story she has to tell oh, to like, oh, how did he ask you? Like, just one morning. Did he have the ring? No, he actually didn't even have the ring yet. Um, and so I, I go, I put that against, and this is a really, really long answer, but if you Google millennials are ruining, you'll get many, many things that millennials are ruining. Um, but if you like, so Google will try to finish that for you. And one of my favorite things that millennials are ruining is marriage proposals. If you Google this, there's, there's a post, uh, New York post article where millennials, they have a, a phone case where you uh, can pop the question. So you can hold up your phone and, and pop out the ring from inside the phone case and then like live stream. And this is of course, if it's illegal, if it's legal to be with somebody, <laughs> I love that. I love the physical reacts I'm getting. So, and the ring will be perfectly placed in the bottom of the shot. And she presuming a heteronormative relationship, she will be in camera and then you can live stream you asking the question. And there are some people like all of us on this call who are like, God damn it. 
ruining the last thing we've got. Uh, and other, and when I tell this story, there are people in the audience who are like, oh, that's kind of sweet. And wow, that sounds like really fun. And where can I get this? And is this still on Amazon? And so for some people, <laughs> this is like over-design. And other people are like, I've been waiting my whole life for somebody to figure this out for me so that I don't have to think about how to ask somebody how to marry me. So when you've got a design, a ready-made design, it, it can make life so much easier, like uh, design sprints or um, rhetoric, you know, just like a wedding. People are like, oh, let's have a wedding. Like, I kind of know what that is. It's a design for how we are going to have this conversation about how to, you know, be get married. But how often do people say, well, what does being married actually mean to you? Can we define husband and wife? Like, let's break that down. Let's let's design the conversation of being married. That's my tirade about this. It's like, it's just about can you break it down and can you can you describe what it is? I think it's important because I think life is made of conversations, mostly. I, I'm I'm like thinking of absolutely everything in completely different terms and perspective now. <laughs> And welcome, welcome to a conversation with Daniel. Yeah, so tell me more about that because this is this is great. <laughs> well, because because it, it's like one of the things one of the things that always comes up, like in everybody's workplace. Um, inevitably, there's always, and there are different personality types, of course, that that are going to be um, presented in in any work environment. And inevitably, <laughs> euphemism of the day, everyone. There are multiple personalities that you are presented with in however, any work environment. <laughs> the, the one, and the unfortunately, one it's always... not a choose your own adventure. No. Well, it, 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 well, for some, it is. Because it, it, so it, it always is. You can yeah. walk out the door. You might not like the options, but uh, but but and sometimes you have to because inevitably there's going to be that one personality in your workplace, and we all know them. We all work with them and have worked with them in in in, in the past, where there is already a, an an outcome to a conversation that hasn't even been initiated yet, mm. but you have to play an active role in that person's validation in reaching that outcome and they will direct huh. the conversation in that that specific way so it's like there are questions that are asked but they're not really questions they're just uh, almost sort of a, a mechanism in order to move the conversation toward that end goal so mm. that they can have whatever validation they want in yes. order to do something and it's just a like, fake conversation a yeah exactly it's like why did you even ask me the question if you already knew the answer yes or or did you just need someone to help you validate something that you thought so that you could get something or ask for something or what and it almost it almost is to the point where it's just like man there are some people that are so good at it you don't even realize that you fell for it until like the next day. And then the an email comes out with an action item and you're like, wait a second, son of a bitch. I got played. <laughs> and it happens, and that's, it happens all the time. And there's people that are really, really good at it. And I think it all comes back to, you know, we're talking about design and, and kind of one of the things that we're talking about um, is, is technology's role in what we do, how we do it, and uh, it, it, at what point does it become an extension of our capabilities, and at what point does it become a crutch? And that's, 
that's one of the interesting things for me. It's like we're, we're talking about conversations and manipulation and designing the conversation. And I think it can't be understated that the idea of intent plays such a critical role in how it is perceived. And the design aspect is there. It's always there, whether we know we do it or not. But the question really comes back to if we're going to attach either a good or a bad connotation to it, I think it all comes back to intent. I think the times that we're living through right now, and, uh, you know, Daniel, you joked before we started recording, is in case you haven't been paying attention to what's happening in the world, we're in the middle of a little bit of a global pandemic right now, and just all of our... Smidge, just a touch of fever. Just a, that much. Uh, and all of our societal norms have essentially been turned upside down. The way in which we have conversations is changing. Uh, how many of you guys have been on a virtual meeting at some point in the last three weeks <laughs> yeah. with 20 plus people, uh, et cetera? And I think, you know, when we talk about how those things are changing, and, and I think some of these changes are going to be long term or potentially permanent in how we interact in the number of us that don't have to show up to an office every day, the number of us who work from home for a number of reasons that make sense, where some businesses who have been sitting on the fence have... Uh, been reluctant to allow their employees to work from home, suddenly finding that, hey, those employees are accessible, they're productive, and yeah. uh, we're not spreading a horrible virus throughout our office environments like we do every year with the typical colds and flus and other things, and now something that's much more impactful and potentially fatal to a large portion of our workforce. So I think you know the, that was kind of the long way around the barn to say the cruciality or the importance of conversations and intentional conversations, I think is increasing. Oh yeah. Would you say? I would say, and Laura, I just want to be acknowledged. I don't know if you, if you want to double Dutch in, into this, this party, <laughs> but I obviously I have another tirade prepared for this question. But <laughs> oh, oh, don't worry. Laura will definitely get, her I words will definitely in. get my words in. No worries. Okay, good, good. I just, I'm, uh, just, I'm being a patient listener as it says actually on oh, my I screen. See, gotcha. <laughs> So, you know, what's interesting to me is that, like, you know, because I train people in facilitation, which is, which, and I, I call it conversation design, somebody's got to take on that role. Otherwise, what we have is inertia or just the, the way things always were. And, and like you said, Shane, we don't have new patterns for this, this new place. And I, I wrote a, an article about this recently. It's pretty hilarious to think that we've had 40,000 years as modern humans with speech and agriculture and, you know, a, a smidge of society. And we've been talking and working together for a long time, and we still get it wrong a lot, even though we've had a long time to practice. We've only had the modern office for less than a century. And the, the modern, modern office, like with whiteboards and sticky notes and the internet, we've had for even less. And so we just don't have norms and conventions for these new ways of talking. We have been sitting around fires, taking turns, smoking a pipe and telling stories for millennia. And that pattern works. And some of the old ways still work great in these new places. And so there are basic patterns. Like, I, I always hesitate to tell people, okay, here's how to design it. I'd rather people be cognizant, mindful, curious, and observant, and seeing what works in their own 
practice and to be a reflective practitioner of conversation design. But I'll just say, like, when you've got 20 people on a call and everyone can speak, we cannot all speak at the same time. It is not, I, we don't need a ghost to come from the grave to tell us this, to vaguely quote Hamlet. Like, this is basic physics. And so the question is, we have to regulate turn-taking. Turn-taking is one of the absolutely fundamental features of design, of conversations that are designable. The place where we have our conversations are designable. I've been, I'm talking to a client where they do not, nor can they not, use Zoom because they have designed, actually two clients who have designed their own digital conversation places that don't do some of the things that Zoom does. Now, Zoom is not perfect. It's, in, in to use a Yiddish term, slightly fakakt, right? Like the breakout rooms are uh, functional, but the dialogue box to make them is insane. If you want to get, as we would normally do in a 20-person workshop, five people per group and to sort of decide who those five people are ahead of time, you can kind of do that if you upload a CSV file to a web browser. And I think if everybody's like a member of your your like package, they can do it. And if you want to have another set of breakout groups where you say, hey, if you want to talk about topic X, go over here. And if you want to talk about topic Y, go over here. Just like some absolute basic physics that we would do in any workshop. The logistics of doing it is hard. And this is one of the challenges, I think, of digital conversations is that when you're in an office and you say, hey, everyone, I just thought, hey, Shane, can you come over here? Can I pick your brain for some for a second? We have to be 100% intentional about every conversation we're having now. Hey, can I pick your brain? Do you have 30 minutes? Here's my calendar link. Uh, and here's the Zoom link. And here's my Slack. And, oh, you're not there, so I need your text number so that I can find you. Like, we need as many channels as possible because conversations have always had a place. We just never noticed it. We've been designing the place, and we haven't been aware of the fact that we're doing it. Yeah, say more. Yeah, yeah. so there's... <laughs> There, I, I feel like uh, there is just so much noise. There has been so much noise uh, in a lot of our workspaces. And uh, this is honestly this, this great big pause. I just wrote an article about it. This great pause that we have the opportunity to revel in, to use for good and not evil, can be a, an incredibly powerful tool now with our conversations and with our organizations and within ourselves. Um, yeah. So everything, every, you know, every choice, every activation we choose leads mm. to some sort of reaction and that's that's true on a micro level and also within our organizations and i feel like within within uh within these organizations that have been so noisy so busy so um so uh, purpose-driven, um, mm. it's allowing everything to be thrown on its head, which is wonderful and exciting because now... Are you an anarchist? <laughs> no, but... <laughs> Great turning. But, but <laughs> if, if we don't allow for things to be on their heads, then we aren't really having a conversation. We aren't really inviting people to have this conversation with us. We are talking at people and we are prescribing. Invitation is so much more powerful and so much more transparent transformative than prescription and that's something that freaks people out and that's why people are harried they're all harried right now they don't know exactly what's coming next but in my opinion the best thing that we can do right now is to listen and to say okay i'm letting go of the reins what is next 
<laughs> yep. It, you talk about uh, Laura you know, standing <laughs> on her head, and actually, if you follow her on social media, you'll realize that she does a lot of yoga and uh, routinely poses with standing on her head. So, um, yeah, that's a very ap- apropos uh, uh, visual there. So, because um, so, I want to double stitch on this idea of invitation, because like, it's a there's it's a big it's a big idea in my in my book, and it kind of goes to this question of the meeting that you were in, where this person incepted an idea in your head. I'm working with somebody, I'm coaching them through a meeting that they're designing. And she's like, well, I don't know if I can get people to, people ask me this all the time. Like, oh, well, what's, if it's remote, how can I get people to pay attention? And I'm like, well, you have to make your meetings really inviting. You have to make people really want to be there. Let's talk about what's going to happen at this meeting. And she's like, well, I want people to get, to basically buy into these set of ideas. And so, the basic invitation, if you were to write it out correctly, is will you please spend some time while I tell you how my ideas are good so that you can agree with them? <laughs> like, like I'm going to write that on the Outlook invitation versus like, would you like to come to a meeting where I will pretend listen to your ideas and then ignore them? So, so did you right. play it back to her in that way so she yeah, could hear? Yeah, I did. It? And she's like, oh, God, like you're right. It's like, don't, don't pretend this is what we call innovation theater or just like garbage language. It's like, if I'm coming to a garbage meeting where I'm pretending to listen to you and I'm asking you to like have some ideas and brainstorm people, you might fool them once, but you will not be able to fool them twice. The second time you try to do it, they're going to be like, dude, what is this about? Really? Like last time you did this, we, we gave you our hearts and our souls and you took our ideas and then they disappeared like, like a mist in the night. And so when you talk about inviting invitations, which is to me, one of the most important designable addressable elements of a conversation, a lot of people say, you know, when we talk about like what are conversations made of and how can we design them? People will often cite emotions as a component of conversations, which they are, but I don't think emotions are actually designable. If you tell somebody to relax or to be happy or to stop being sad or like, you seem angry, can you stop being angry? Like, that's not a thing. You can try to manage your own emotions and that's hard enough. Designing someone else's emotions are impossible, I think. And so we have to design other things. Like we can, does, we can't say, hey, can we slow down? But if you slow down a conversation, if you change the cadence of a conversation, we might be able to chill things out. Shift the feelings right. versus the emotions. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but, but in, the invitation is something you can design. You can say, hey, uh, come to this meeting. I'm going to get your ideas and I hope to do something with it. That's fine. People will be like, okay, cool. I'll give you some ideas that you hope to do something with. And I like the idea. I like the analogy that you used earlier of the of the choose your own adventure, uh, because I I I think I mean, there there have been so many meetings, especially lately, as as like everybody has been. Um, we're doing more and more video com- video conferences and video meetings and all that fun stuff. And um, like even such a thing as like a brainstorming session, you know, which which should be something that is very collaborative and open minded. Um, it's like, you know, it seems that there there is kind of going back to what I was saying earlier. There's almost like a, a, 
a hopeful outcome that the the meeting organizer wants everybody to collectively reach at in order to validate their opinion. But other people going into it are expecting like, no, I'm going to actually add something to the conversation that is going to help us collectively get to a point that has not yet been defined. And so it seems like, man, I, I, I really wish, uh, and, and, you know, having looking looking at things from that perspective now, if I'm in that position as the meeting organizer, first of all, um, it, it comes down to, again, intent and um, designing that conversation in order to take different perspectives into an account and, and kind of make it sort of a choose your own adventure situation and scenario. And I think putting myself on the other end of it as, as a recipient, someone receiving that invitation, that makes it more compelling for me to want to be a part of it. But if the invitation and the reality don't match up, then what's the point? Right. And so this is the basic, again, basic physics. We all have thrown parties. And if I say, Hey, I'd like to invite you to a party, uh, where, uh, you are, you're allergic to all the food, <laughs> and uh, everything will be throwing spikes at your head. You'd be like, that doesn't sound like a fun party at all, and you wouldn't even pretend that anybody would come to this. But we design these sort of fake invitations all the time. Here's the truth. Everyone else is also designing their conversation while you're trying to design theirs. The poet David White talks about, he defines the conversational nature of reality as the world asks things of us. And we ask things of the world and the world does not always give us, does not always respond to us in ways that we want. And we do not have to do everything the world asks of us. Marriage is a conversation, right? Our, uh, every friendship we have is a conversation where we ask and we are offered in, in a normal everyday one-on-one -on -one conversation back when we could like be in person and like go have a coffee or whatever. Like if you can remember back that far a month ago, <laughs> you would sit down with a friend and they'd be like, Oh, it's so great to see you, Daniel. And, and they just like, spill their guts and they're just like talking, talking, talking. And at about the halfway point, they'll say, Oh my God, I've been talking about myself the whole time. What's going on with you? I'm Shane's laughing. So I assume that I'm not the only person that this has happened to. We've been that person on both ends of the dialogue. Turn taking is so obvious in a one-on-one -on -one conversation when we've got five people, the complexity of a dialogue goes exponentially it's actually not exponential. It's the graph theory. So if you actually draw the dots and connect all the dots, so like two-person conversation, one line, three-person conversation, three lines, four-person conversation, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six lines, five-person conversation, it's 10 lines, six-person, it's like 15, and then seven. It goes really fast. It's not technically exponential. It's graph theory. Um, I'm sure I'm getting that wrong and someone will correct me, but when we're getting on these calls and we're trying to do a brainstorm on a Zoom with eight, nine people, what we're losing is some of the information we used to have, which is like eye contact and also like who's sitting at the front of the table, right? There's no head of the table when you're on a Zoom call. When you go into gallery review, everybody's there. So the power dynamics are all weird. There's just one person who can somehow shut us all up. Uh, and put us into rooms and move us around. And so we have to design our online conversations. Right now, they're just, they, like Zoom is great, but it was designed by a bunch of engineers. I guarantee you they spoke to zero facilitators. 
zero facilitators in designing this tool because the dialogue yes. box is cold, cold, heartless, heartless user experience. They could have Indeed. done like so much with a little bit more. And we've got to get The problem is we have to get good at this really, really fast. We do, and and we're testing these theories at scale here, uh, very <laughs> right. very quickly. A and, giant experiment at scale. Yeah, and I, I can only imagine people's Jira queues right now in terms of things that are failing. You know that they didn't expect to fail. People breaking things wow, in very man. creative ways. Uh, but one of the things I wanted to circle back on, and, and you talked a little bit about, you know, we've talked about intentional design, we've talked about these things, and one of the things we've talked about a lot on the podcast is the concept of things like empathy and emotional intelligence, and whether or not those Cot things, woo <laughs> <laughs> woo, as we've as we've used in the past. Um, but the, but the reality is, is you know, there, there's some debate as to whether those are skills that are inherent to some people and some personality types, and whether those skills can be built upon, exercised. Mm. Etc. Um, you know, I think we can teach t to a certain point. There has to be some innate capability there, or at least mm. a desire to improve the the, the skill sets in those areas. Mm. When it comes to designing conversations, and, and I'm going to take it here to you've obviously uh, written a book about this that is uh, yet to be released. I did get a notification, just so you know, that it, it will be at my house on May 1st, according to Amazon. So it's possible. It's possible. So. Global shipping is. Uh, well, I, I do yes. believe it's deemed an essential item because it's made of paper. <laughs> but, but tell me more about what you're doing to kind of build upon the skill sets people need to structure conversations, to have good conversational ranges and things of that yeah. nature. Well, I mean, that's a really great question. And, and I think you broke it down well that people talk about soft skills and my friend Steve Portugal, who has another great podcast called uh, dollars to donuts, he interviews user researchers. And there's this idea that the soft skills are hard. I was, he was the first person who I ever heard say that phrase, which I thought was great. And this idea that if you can't break, actually, wait, Shane, you said this in our conversation. If you can't break a process down into clear steps, you don't understand it. Right. Yes, which devolves into a 10-minute conversation about functional decomposition of processes, which is far too nerdy for even our nerds on this well, podcast. But, I mean, if you cannot functionally decomposition, decompose, decompose the decompose. process into a messy set of factors, uh, then you, don't, you do not fully understand it. Here's the other thing. Um, oh, man, where is it? It's in Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. It's one of my, there's this great quote, I used it in an article ages ago. There's this idea that in design, having a process, there are designers who will tell you, like, I don't have a process. All I do is just, like, look at it, like, talk to a lot of people, try to, like, deeply understand it, try lots of things, learn from those things I've tried, and then make the one that works the best. I'm like, that's your that's a process. I like yeah. how you I like how you improv there into a hippie guru voice as you were talking yeah. about the feel the <laughs> the only thing it was missing is feel the vibe, man. Yeah, I feel the vibe. And I'm like that's that's a process, dude. 
and if you have an inkling of a process, there's lots of things that are available to you. One, you can uh, be introspective about which parts of your process are working and which ones aren't, right? You can eliminate a step in your process if you're running short on time, if you know that it's like nice to have, not must have, right? Uh, you can charge your clients when you're finished with one phase of your process. My favorite reason for using a process. But when you talk about like empathy, can you break empathy down? And the answer is, Yes and no, because I think uh, there are mechanical aspects to these things, and you can copy the mechanics. So the, the quote from Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance is, analytical thought, the knife. He describes analytical thought as a knife, and when that knife cuts, something is lost because you're, you're slicing something open, but something is also gained right? Because you're dissecting something. You cut it open. There's, there's, you destroy it in some way. You break it apart. And can you put it back together? And so here's the thing, like with empathy, like this is something that my friends who are on the uh, Asperger's spectrum do all the time. They learn the mechanics. They learn, okay, uh, browse downward 30 angles, 30 degrees, uh, it means furrowed. Furrowed usually means consternation. Consternation usually means frustration. I probably have frustrated them in some way, or they're experiencing frustration. So they back their way into like understanding what facial expressions are. And they have, a, they have a, an explicit process to handicap their, their uh, more challenging intuition so with empathy, I can say, yeah, like right now I have, uh, this is something I taught recently on a, a workshop. There's this sticky note with a smiley face on it. And that goes behind my camera when I really want to make sure that I'm making eye contact with people. It's hard to look at that dot. And so in I, in I run these facilitation practice labs online and I tell people, okay, let's get into breakout rooms. Let's have a conversation and let's focus on making eye contact with each other. And now I'm doing it more intentionally. And don't you feel more connected to me as I make more eye contact with you? Like, or is that a little creeped out maybe. A little creeped out, right? Yeah. yeah. So like, it can feel like manipulation or it can feel like, wow, Daniel's paying attention to me. Yeah. And so you can teach people, hey, just like you teach people to give a great talk in front of a one-to-many conversation, hey, don't move around too much. Move around a little bit. Make eye contact around the room. When I'm really nervous and I'm giving a talk, I remember that very basic thing that I learned from theater stuff. Like, okay, look over here and say something. Look over there and say something. Look back over here and say something. Speak to the back of the room. And then suddenly everyone in the room feels like I am talking to them, even though I can't see them because the lights are up in the house. And so there are mechanics to being empathic. There are mechanics to designing conversations better. I still think it's like making a souffle or noodles, like I can teach you the steps, but you still have to do it and like look at it and be like, are these hard peaks or are these soft peaks? Um, and have I overbeaten this? Like I can warn you about all of those things, but you still have to do it and then re like be reflective about what you're doing. 
you know, in these strange and interesting times, and something you just brought up there reminded me of, of you know, I've seen probably a hundred bread posts on social media. Oh my God. In the last it's week. all men can do. Men are just like, I'm contributing and I, yes. I can't go out. I can't like build anything else, but I can get some yeast to do the work for me. Or if it's you don't have yeast, a sourdough starter. And a lot so, of guys are doing sourdough. It's yeah. I'm, I'm one of those guys. And actually a friend of mine posted a, uh, posted a post today that says, are you uh, stress baking even more than usual right now? And I'm like, I feel attacked. I really feel attacked here, John. Why did you post that? John Custy, I'm talking to you. Um, but but no, it, it, it was funny because I've really gotten into sourdough. And in the last mm. week, I've baked, you know, the four or five sourdoughs. And it's really coming together. But one of the things wow, I that's realized. that's a lot of bread, dude. Yeah, you don't even know. Um, we talked about this. Your kids don't all live at home anymore. No, you're th- not three of them are here. For a crowd. Oh, they've come back. There are three. The one from college is home because they kicked them all out of the oh, dorms. Oh God! Oh but, God! But one of the things I realized: no. the reason I'm liking the sourdough is it's less about a formulaic recipe and more about understanding the mechanics and the technique and getting a feel for what makes for a good starter, a good dough. You know, you know well before you get that piece of dough in the oven whether it's going to turn out well or not. And that's by learning and repetition and understanding the mechanics. And by feel. Unfortunately, unfortunately, I'm in a situation where, and I'm sorry for talking over you, but like, I'm going to gripe now. Uh, My clients or my potential clients, like everybody wants like a quick tips post. Because they're like, oh, I'm an expert facilitator, but like, are there just some quick tips you can share about how I can become an expert facilitator online? I'm like, yes, and it won't mean anything because you have to like slow down and learn how to manage yourself differently because like so many things can go wrong. So many more things can go wrong in online facilitation than they can go in in in-person facilitation, surprisingly. Uh, And you have to learn how to manage yourself differently. And it's like somebody who doesn't believe in being coached. They're like, oh, just tell me how to do it. And I'm like, fine. Oh, okay. That's not so helpful. Like you need to touch the dough. And it's, and that, that what you're talking about in, in my, uh, in my realm of study is what I call the practice. Um, you know, it's not something that you can just read a recipe for. And, uh, you know, if you're making macarons, if your peaks are too stiff, then they're going to go flat. Um, so it's, it's really, oh, we crave recipes. We crave the easy solutions. So, so, I don't know if everyone does. I don't know because as someone myself who hates recipes, they make me anxious. They do. They do. Uh, I cook at home every day and it's very rare that I ever use a recipe unless it's something that I have never made before and I don't know anything about. I'd rather get all of my ingredients and have an understanding of how these different, imagine how all these different ingredients could come together. What are all the, the uh, numerous combinations that it could create? And then it's playtime. It's like, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm not going to micromanage my cooking experience. And Charlie's rolling his eyes like, what what are you making? I, I'm not sure yet, <laughs> but but you know it's it's the whole idea of the practice that that we're revisiting this idea of being innovative, being willing to go along on this journey and not knowing where it's going to go, and being okay with the the uncertainty. Uh, and that that to me, like in a conversation, is the most exciting exciting part, is the willingness to 
listen, yes, but then also just see, okay, where is this going to go? This doesn't need to arrive at a certain point. Yes, we may have a overarching goal, but who knows where it's going to where it's going to go next we might be talking about macarons we might be talking about uh, souffles who knows? <laughs> well i mean i here's the challenge I, and if we're going to talk about like the technological aspect of this it can be easy to think that and there's tons of people out there who have put out easy to follow one and done conversation recipes the design sprint and Jake Knapp's a wonderful man, and it's a wonderful book. And there are some people who are like saying, like, this is the one recipe that will solve all conversational challenges, every product design problem I have. And then the truth is, is that most people who have to use it wind up modifying it in some way, shape, or form. Jake designed a conversation for his own context, and the recipe works very well for many contexts. But many people have to, to 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 add more sugar, add more flour, you know, add some more water, depending on their elevation. And so I think people crave, because of the the promise of technology, the promise of uh, simplicity, the promise of repeatability. People want training. Thank God, because how else would I make any money, right? Um, people want to be trained, but like I actually feel like I'm in a very delicate situation because what I'm trying to train them to do is to be improvisational. I'm trying to train them to be flexible and to notice more while also giving them, okay, these are hard peaks and these are soft peaks, right? And this is how to know when you're going to get to when you're going to go into curdling, right? Because there are some techniques, and then some of it is just noticing and having preferences because you like you do what many great chefs do. I'm going to look at six recipes and then go um, go my own way. But that's chef territory. And so most of us are are just barely in the 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 the, the prep cook stage for our conversation design skills. We're doing it all like we uh, we don't know how we know what we're doing. We've picked up little things along the way. And some of us have picked up good habits and some of us have picked up not so good habits. We've worked with both type of people. And I had this wonderful woman, Jocelyn Ling on my podcast. I had the opportunity to work together with her on some projects. And the first thing we do when we sit down, I barely met her and she was like, okay, uh, tell me a little bit about your working style. We had like three people. It was like, let's talk about our working styles. I was like, what a fat, no one's asked me this question. This was like, you know, seven or eight years ago. I was like, wow, yeah, okay. Let's talk about working styles. Do you, are you a calendar person? Or are you a list person? Or are you a, a Word doc person? Or are you, a, you know, an Excel person? Like, let's talk about what kind of people we are and let's have the conversation about the conversation and then let's have the conversation. And that's just so amazing. And I was like, where did you learn that? And she's like, I had a good boss who taught me that conversation. And now she knows how to have that conversation because she's seen it done and she uses it all the time. Like, and that's amazing. That is amazing and, and, and powerful too, right? Because sometimes you have to pause, get an understanding of the situation you're working with in order to actually effectively move forward. And that's something I see so many people make the mistake. And, and you referenced this earlier, Daniel, when you said people want the answers before they've done the work yeah. to understand the questions. And it's, it, that's Ooh. a paraphrase. I don't you know if I said that. That sounds better you, than whatever I said. You, that's you, great. You said something along those lines, and I, and, and I boiled it up to its essence uh, with a little dash of something done. that I added in that wasn't in the recipe. <laughs> 
Matt, Drew, you've been quiet, unusually, for the last 15 minutes. Well, I, I've been fixated on on one one question, and it's kind of been um, dabbled on a little bit here and there. And it's just, it, and I, I don't know, maybe this there's a good way to tie this in. It's probably a good way to tie this into to to that is if we're losing our ability to listen. Hmm. Uh, I'm sorry. What's that? Is, is whether? Yeah. <laughs> Jared. Wait. What did you say? <laughs> Well, see, it's about losing our ability to listen. And I, well, so I'll just say one thing on that. Like in the chapter about turn-taking, I, there's this classic quote from uh, Uma Thurman's character in Pulp Fiction where she says, like, she says, do you listen or you just wait for your turn to talk? And one of the challenges with listening is that we, it's like this Zen concept of being versus becoming. The analogy I, they use in Zen philosophy is the bowl. We buy a bowl. But what, which is being, it's made of substance, but we're actually buying is non-being, right? The whole, the space in the bowl is what makes the bowl useful. And so with speaking, we see speaking and in our, I don't know, patriarchal-ish society, we see action as more uh, noble than non-action, doing more powerful than waiting and speaking more powerful than listening. But speaking and listening are just two sides of one coin. And so I, I think the answer is yes, we are. And the answer is not just like what my dad used to say, you got, you got two eyes and one mouth <laughs> and two ears and, one, and two nostrils. So, you know, do everything twice as much as, as you talk, kid. <laughs> right. Yeah. Very and nice. all that's true. My dad is very wise. Uh, and, uh, but I think, I think you can give people that math or you can just say, why is listening less interesting than talking? And there's, there's what's underneath it is like just a whole lot of societal baggage. So I don't think it's just recent. I think it's, I think it's a permanent, a permanent point of view. And so this question that you were asking Shane of earlier is like, well, who's this book for? I will answer that question. I, I do think it is for anybody, but I have written a book that I hope is for people who need to lead conversations at work because work is where we spend a lot of time. I use a lot of examples in from life because of the rest of life is also where we also speak and listen and learn and try to accomplish stuff through conversation. It's about leadership. And so there's this idea of what does it mean to be a conversational leader, to lead through and with conversation. And so there are sections in the book where we talk about being in dialogue versus facilitating a group conversation as not a participant, but as a leader of it. And then what does it mean to lead an organizational conversation? What does it mean to lead a community dialogue? How is a community conversation even uh, architected? So there's, when you talked about conversational range, right? Like that's definitely an idea that I learned from David White initially. He talks about this idea of three marriages, uh, being married to uh, a beloved, you know, having a significant other in your life can be transformative in your life. And then we are married to our work, our purpose in life. And then there's also a marriage to ourself. That if you uh, gain the whole world, but lose yourself, it's not much that we've gained. And so David White talks about those three marriages. And I, I sort of see myself as like uh, realizing that we have a conversation with ourselves, and that we can design that conversation with ourselves 
It just means like everybody has to learn how to take care of themselves. And I don't care if you're journaling or if you're meditating. In the book, I write about this woman on NPR who talked about how she would go for walks with her dog and leave herself voicemails and then sometimes listen to them later because she just, you know, we're so much better at helping other people because there's distance between us and them. And there's no distance between us and our own self and our own conversation. And so we need to learn how to manage our own conversations better. We need to learn how to manage group dialogue. We need to be able to have one-on-ones and move the direction of an entire organizational conversation if we're leading in a certain way. Um, And so the book, I don't know, I think my hope is that people will be more powerful conversational leaders as the result of reading this book. If my conversations with you, both in a formal setting and an informal setting, are any indication, I think most people will find something useful within this book. And I appreciate you doing the hard work to write it because I know writing a book is not an easy endeavor. Yeah, I wouldn't wish it on my my worst enemies. Give a nod to Charlie there, Laura. He's on what his fifth book now. No, no, number four has been has been cooking in four. the oven for the past okay. three years. Mm. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Sounds delicious. Yeah. Simmering, it's caramelized, Ready to fall off the bone. Caramelized yeah. falling off the bone. I, I actually dusted <laughs> off a a you know Evernote like a fourteen page Evernote that I was laying out the structure of a uh, a nonfiction work or no a fiction work actually and. And that's very kind of scientific heavy. And I'm like, hmm, is now a good time to revisit this? <laughs> so I spent about 30 minutes yesterday morning with my first cup of coffee of the day, you know, going through that and thinking, do I want to bring this pain upon myself right now? And the answer is, I'm not sure. So, but Daniel, <laughs> this, is, this, I, this is like becoming an actor, right? If you can do anything else, don't do it, kid. Do it. Yeah. If you can do anything else besides writing. So Daniel, I know you've got to run here, but uh, I do. In, to give you the best plug possible, where can people find all of the amazing things you're doing, including the book? The internet. Uh, it's so easy to find me on the it's internet. So obvious. <laughs> you can Google me, Daniel Stillman. I'm the best SEO, Daniel Stillman, I think, on the internet. Uh, but you can find my my podcast at the Conversation Factory, uh, and there's links to download free chapters to the book. You can download the first two chapters of the book as a PDF to do whatever you choose with it, and uh, read it or not, read it or not, uh, buy it or not. Those are the absolute essentials. It's called the ConversationFactory.com because we all, you know, manufacture conversations. It's a little little pun, little play on words there. Gives me a little tickle inside every time I get to say it. It's the longest email. I, if I could go back, I, I you know, sh- shorter URLs, shorter email addresses. When I give people my email address, it's easier for them to write it down because you can remember it's just the conversation factory. But then when you look at it, you're like, God, that's a lot of letters. What was I thinking? That I definitely get that indeed. But I just want to thank you for your time. Thank you, brother. I definitely enjoyed this conversation. And I, and I look forward to future conversations. And I want to thank Matt and Laura for another amazing set of conversations today as well. Matt, thank you, guys. Laura, you're awesome. Shane, thank you so much for honoring me with your time and your great questions, all of you. It's been super fun. It is fun. And definitely once the book is launched and you're working on whatever the next amazing project is, we'll have you back. I'd love to have another conversation. Hopefully after all of the craziness in the world has turned a bit and we're all back to a new type of crazy sense of new crazy normal. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you again, guys. Have a great day. Thanks y'all.
hope you enjoyed today's episode. On behalf of my fellow hosts, Laura Araujo, Matt Drew, and myself, Shane Carlson, we'd like to thank you for listening. Be sure and check out our website at www.techno-biotic.com and be sure to follow us on all the usual social media outlets. Until next time. Technobiotic.